My name's Sam Towns. And I'm Alex Norton. Before we get into today's episode, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. The Forgecast is brought to you thanks to Robert Weber Abrasives, the place to go in Australia for all of your abrasive needs, including Cubitrons, all at the best prices. Visit abrasives.on.net today to browse their range and get in touch. So what have you been up to this week, Alex? Uh, Working more on that... Uh, ornate heirloom dagger. Yes, looking really good. Yes, yeah, my first uh, first go at doing an inlaid fluted handle. Um, mm. Prior to this, my only ever attempt at fluting a handle was um, my first handle for my um, forty-eight hour dagger last year. Yep, which was so horrific that I ended up completely redoing the handle from scratch. <laughs> Sans flutes. Uh, but I've been studying a lot of videos, largely videos from Niels himself, actually, uh, on how to do it. Um, and he was kind enough to give me some really good pro tips via WhatsApp to get yep. my uh, get the get get it looking as good as possible. Um, but the um, the the main thing that I learned, the main tip that he gave me, is that there is no cheat. You basically, if you want to do it well, you've got to sit there for four or five hours uh, and slowly go insane. That's just <laughs> that's fluting for you. That's pretty much. If you want the fluting to look worth a damn, that's what you got to do. But it it came out pretty cool, and um, it's it's weird holding one piece of an ornate dagger build um, and having it look like a thing, like all on its own. <laughs> You know, like, oh, there you go, project finished. Oh, no, that's just one piece. <laughs> yeah. But um, I had been tossing up whether or not to scrap it and start over again because I'd gone with beef wood because um, I wanted to do a lot of flutes. I wanted it to be a heavily fluted handle. It's got six uh, separate flutes running down it um, with three intermediary flutes as well. So... Um, if I had chosen a burl or something, something with a, a sort of a highly featured wood, uh, it would have been lost a lot to the mm. flutes, uh, especially with the wire inlays there. So I went with a, a simpler wood, but I was looking at the beef wood as I was going, and I'm like, meh. Um, nightmarish wood to work with, by the way. Um, <laughs> I, can see, I can see why it's prized by carvers. It's like stone. It's really just brittle, hard stuff. Um, and, um, I'm working and working and it's, it's looking so plain and everything. But then as soon as you put the, uh, you take it up to, I took it up to 1200 grit and then put the oil onto it. And, um, I, I felt validated in my choice. So I, I got to learn to trust my, my initial instincts on these things. Yeah. So, um, I've been working more on one of the two backlog folders that I've been making. Um, and been pretty happy with my slow meandering progress on that. Um, it's my first time doing backlocks, so I'm just taking my time with it, but it's, it's looking good. Um, and I've been doing some more work on a project that's been sitting there untouched for a good long while. Uh, that really ornate Nakiri that I've been working mm-hmm. on, on and off for months. Yeah. Um, it actually um, got a buyer 
Mm. Somebody's like, do you still have that thing you're working on? And I showed them where I'm at with it. And they said, I told them how much it's likely to be. And they're like, yep, I'll have that. Finish it. <laughs> so um, somebody all the way over in Seattle of all the places. Oh, nice. Yeah. So um, that's going to be making some more appearances, which is good because I've needed a, a excuse to go back to working on it because it's a, a particularly, it's going to be a particularly nice piece. Um, so that's pretty much been my my whole week still sort of winding down <laughs> from recovering from the 48 hour challenge yeah, getting yeah. the strength back um my song of the week is uh it's a cover because the song itself um it was shit when it came out and it's been shit ever since mm-hmm. and this cover literally just came out during this past week and it turned it into an awesome song it completely switched the genre, um, brought it into a genre it always should have been, and it was performed in a way that made it epic. Not just a good song, but a great song. Um, the original song was Get Your Freak On by Missy Elliott, <laughs> uh, which has one of the worst music videos I think I've ever seen. Um, and, yes. it's a, and it's a terrible freaking song. It's really bad. Like, I like hip-hop. I'm a, I'm a rap fan. I'm a hip hop fan. It's a terrible song. Um, I even don't mind a few of Missy Elliott's songs, but she just missed everything with that one. But then last week, um, Leo Maracchioli um, from yep. I think he's Norway. Um, no, he does heavy metal covers of uh, songs that were never heavy metal to begin with. And um, he released a cover of it that sort of adds this sort of, like, uh, insane aggression. Like like an insane person seeing it at mm-hmm. you really, really aggressively. <laughs> and the music video is phenomenal that he did. This is this an indie guy. He's unsigned. He does all of this just for fun. Um, he has a music room that would just tantalize and delight any muso. Um, and he just, he smashed out this cover that made the song what it was always meant to be, if you ask me. Um, right. it's just, it's just got this ferocity and intensity behind it that, um, I didn't realize it needed until I heard it. So I highly recommend checking it out. So cool. how about you, Sam? What have you been up to this week? Uh, on the creative front, absolutely fuck all. Um, recovering. Well, yeah, sort of. Uh, I tore apart my workshop and uh, rebuilt it again. Um, As you do. Yeah, I had a friend come over and uh, give me a hand with that. Um, because it was just it was such a mess after the 48-hour dagger challenge. Like, you couldn't walk in there at the time. Yep. Um, so, got that done. And also the inside workshop, where I'm sitting right now. Um, the engraving bench. Um, and I ran out of belts. <laughs> I was grinding on the, uh, the, um, guillotine tool. Ah, yeah. Dies. And, yeah. um, the belts were just strops. And I, <laughs> I was not removing any material. And I still got, like, four more sets. So that's four times three, uh, sets, uh, to grind. And, um, 
better Going call out Rob at Weber Abrasives. Yeah, so I got <laughs> on to Rob, and uh, hopefully we'll, well, we'll be seeing some belts soon. Um, Excellent. But yeah, um, that's that put a halt to that. And then I got struck by the um, by the procrastination bug. Uh, yes. And, and ended up sitting, staring at my hands and at my desk, kind of wondering about what the hell I should be doing. Um, I still haven't heat treated the sword. Like, I keep looking at it going, I really need to get around to you doing that. You built a special for kiln I know, for I fucking built a special <laughs> kiln for it and all. And yeah, still haven't done it yet. I haven't fired up the kiln since I built it. Um, like, since, since I finally got it running and, and got it all... Uh, tuned i uh, i haven't run it again so yeah i've been really bad at keeping up with things i have been doing a little bit of work on the engraving on my four pound english cutlass hammer doing the mountain range excellent um but yeah i've been finding myself uh, very unmotivated recently um yeah that's pretty all much right it. all listeners it's just spam Sam's <laughs> media with motivational messages right now. Uh, yeah, that'll help. A week late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, no, you know, it, it fluctuates and stuff like that. Um, there's been a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, um, mm. life stuff that just has made things a little tougher than they than they usually are. So, um, that's all right. It'll it'll get better. It's just a it's just Always a matter does. of time. Uh, my my song, <laughs> my song this week. So I made a terrible mistake, and and it's one that I make so often when I'm in a bad mood. Is that I'll find something else, find something to make me feel worse. Ah yes. And like it's impossible to avoid the works of Bo Burnham at the moment. Um, because he's everywhere and I keep hearing snippets of his songs and stuff on YouTube and stuff like that. And I was kind of like, I really liked his comedy. I really like Bo Burnham's comedy. I I love all that kind of stuff. So I decided to watch inside the special that he did for Netflix. Mm -hmm. It was a fucking terrible idea. (laughs) Um, Bo does such a good job of depicting the crushing depression that comes with like access to the internet and complete social isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it like, he does it so well that you're actually concerned for his well being at the end of the video. You forget that he is playing a character. Yeah. Right. Like you, you're fully convinced that it's like Bo Burnham is literally losing his mind in this video. <laughs> like you are worried. Um, and so, yeah, it, it like, it really, uh, a, a lot of it, struck home for me because, you know, he speaks to the, the part of us that is both worldly concerned. Like we see so much going wrong in the world and we want to do something about it. But then also that part of us that realizes that there's nothing we fucking can do. (laughs) Uh, And the, you know, massive juxtaposition between the two. Anyway, so that was a terrible idea and I don't recommend it to anyone because, uh, especially if you're in a bad place, because it's just not a good good way to encourage yourself to be in a better place but yeah, um, i just i just blast blues music and feel sorry for myself like a normal person <laughs> sam <laughs> yeah well you know i i'm i'm not normal um <laughs> Put that on a t-shirt. anything but um <laughs> but um i ended up 
I, I, I have had the songs from inside, like, stuck in my head since I watched it. Because they are incredibly catchy, and they're incredibly pointed, and I love the, the lyricism. But I decided to choose the silliest one, um, which is literally called Shit. Right. Uh, by Bo Burnham from the Inside album. Um, and it, it kind of it kind of sums up how I feel right now. <laughs> It's like it's lighthearted tone, but then the lyrics. <laughs> Ray of sunshine, as always, Sam. Of course, man. I'm, just, I'm here to bring levity to the show. That's like it. that is my job. See, I'm the, I'm the I'm the dark, serious one, and Sam's yeah. the comedic element. That's it. Yeah, yeah that's it. I mean, we're we're both like tortured souls. It's just that you know, like. I dance on social media to, to yeah. vent to vent it. <laughs> That's it. Like I'm always, always the one cracking jokes. Alex is on on the podcast. Alex is the one dancing on camera, but we're both fucked in the head. <laughs> oh god, you you guys wait till you see my next YouTube video. I'm still wondering whether I should even release it. Uh, I'm interested. If, if I want to see it. If you're talking about damaging content. <laughs> If you're, okay, so, like, yeah, in the event that we, uh, <laughs> in the event that you don't upload it, I still want to see a copy. Okay. <laughs> I'll probably upload it. Oh, yeah, well. Maybe even by the time this comes out. Yeah, you never know. Oh, I did upload a video, the video of the 48-hour dagger challenge. You did. It didn't have it anywhere near enough swearing in it. Oh, yeah, no, I uploaded a blooper reel for my patrons. Yeah, you better uh, sign on to that, guys. Yeah, I also gave access to Alex because I thought he'd find it funny. It's only like two minutes long, but it's all of the fuck ups that I made. Well, not all of them. It was a few of them <laughs> because I didn't film at all. It was a uh, bit. It reminded me a lot of. Have you seen? You know the movie Boondock Saints, one of my favorite yeah. movies of all time. Um, when Rocco um, has the realization of what the, the brothers should do, and yeah, he just goes off on that expletive rant. <laughs> yeah it basically reminded me of that pretty much yeah um i mean like watching it back for myself i was very well reserved despite the absolute soul-crushing agony that was going through me at the time <laughs> um but yeah so uh, like my patrons get access to all kinds of fun stuff like that um but yeah, no, I was I was quite pleased with the amount of video I had from the 48-hour dagger challenge because I didn't remember a lot of setting up the camera and getting angles and stuff, but obviously I did a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was happy that I was able to put together something somewhat of a comprehensive video of the build, even though I missed a couple of things um, that I ended up doing at like midnight. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I didn't film the remaking of the scales, and I didn't film the remaking of the guard. Um, I did catch breaking the guard on camera, but I didn't put that in the original video. I put that in the bloopers. (laughs) But yeah, so, um, yeah, that's the one thing I did this week. There you go. So, do we, do we have any, uh... Listener emails? We do. We have an we have an email and we have um, a Instagram question. So Excellent. the the email is from uh, Jeremy Little, and um, he says, "Hello, gentlemen. I recently came across a discussion around whether someone should be allowed to call themselves a blacksmith if they do not hold any official qualifications mm-hmm. or have had formal training. I thought it might be an interesting topic for the Forge Cast. If you want to <laughs> rant." 
It is. I mean, <laughs> we could we could literally make an entire episode about this topic. I think that's what he's asking. Oh uh, yeah, seriously. Like we're we're uh, yes, we have our opinions on that one. Good heavens! What was that? I have no idea. That was my phone. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, there to do the short Cliff Notes version. There are professions where you really want the the, the qualifications there, like surgeon. Mm. You know, you, you really want the, your surgeon to have a, a universal qualification that is you know recognised in the country in which they are practicing it. But the fact is, blacksmiths nowadays are not necessary. We're, we're past that. We're, we're not in a world anymore where blacksmiths are required for the functioning of a civilization. Uh, we are now artists. Yeah. And we are, we are craftsmen that, that make wants, not needs. Uh, and anybody who makes any kind of want and not a need does not require a qualification. Yeah. I mean, like, added to that, the, the issue that a lot of the older generation of blacksmiths are suffering from is that they come from a time in which blacksmithing was a trade. Yeah. Right? Like, blacksmiths were seen as the same as electricians, as carpenters, as, you know, bricklayers. And it People- wasn't that long ago. No, like, this is the 80s. One, know, of, like- my, one of my neighbours, who's now 87, uh, is the son of the Hagley blacksmith. Right. Who, who was the blacksmith and wheelwright of Hagley that would literally fix people's wagons as they came through. Like, it, yeah. it's that close. That's in, in time. That's how, even, you know. You know, yeah, even guys like Bruce Beamish, who's not nowhere near 80 yet. Um, but he is a certified master blacksmith. Mm. Um, Beamish being the guy who made, like, uh, commissioned our anvils that we both own. Uh, fantastic anvils. Um, oh, but, yeah. yeah you know, like he he has his accreditation from the the sixties and seventies. Um, it's not all that long ago that blacksmithing was seen as a trade, as any other trade you can think of, plumbers, all that kind of stuff. But it stopped being a trade. Like blacksmithing is no longer offered at trade schools. There are a couple of trade schools. You know, like you can argue, like there's one in New South Wales. The TAFE runs a blacksmithing course. There's, there's one the Hereford, in Hereford Institute. Yes, there's one in the UK, and there's a couple in the US, but the thing is is that they're not recognized trades anymore, right? Like, there's no government subsidy for blacksmiths. Like, if you, uh, want, if you want a place to go where you can very efficiently learn how to do everything, you know, the, the technically correct way, that's what you do. Yeah. Ra- rather than muddle about watching YouTube videos and listening to podcasts and trying to figure it out from there. That's it. Like, there's there's no longer companies that hire blacksmiths, right? Like, they're at... Um, you, Except maybe, like, the those living museums and things. Yeah, but that's less about hiring a blacksmith and more about hiring a guy who can swing a hammer at an angle. That's it, yeah. Uh, you know, like... <laughs> you know, B-Y- you, it's BYOB, but the, the last B stands for beard. Yes. Yeah, gone, gone are the days where we require, you know, men to make uh, two gross of blades a day you know, on an anvil, you know. 1,500 nails a week. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, and the, the problem that we're suffering in this generation is the fact that those guys who have their trades or new people who had the trades certificate are now saying, well, you can't call yourself a blacksmith unless you have a trade certificate. And my answer to that is normally... Point me where I can fucking get one. 
the, the simple, the simple uh, sort of social psychology of it is if somebody has had to go through uh, an enduring process to get to where they are um, and then times move on where the new people getting into that same field don't have to go through that enduring process, then they're going to feel some sort of envy or, or scorn towards those people because they had to do a thing that the new generation do not have to anymore. Um, that's why you get the same thing as, you know, back in my day, we used to get up at four in the morning and blah, 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 um, because times change and things move on. I mean, if there was the Internet and YouTube and, um, you know, hammer ins because of the popularity of shows like Forged in Fire and things like that back in the day, more people would have been blacksmiths. Mm hmm. But they didn't have those things. It's just like we've talked about. If you were to bring a Anyang power hammer back to medieval times and show a blacksmith, they would start using it. They'd be like, this is brilliant. <laughs> they would sell you their firstborn. Yeah, exactly. Because it, they wouldn't say, "What? Is, I'm not using that nonsense. I'll do it the old-fashioned way. No, they're like, thank goodness, my back is killing me. Uh, it's just... It's just it's a, it's a it's it's a tale as old as time in every trade. Everybody yeah. who did it the old way thinks the old way is better, regardless. And and as Alex uh, has pointed out, and we've we've both pointed out in the past, blacksmithing is now an art. And just like you'll get guys who say, you know, guys who play electric guitar aren't real guitarists. Guys who you know like use synthesizers aren't real musicians. Uh, guys who paint with, you know, people who paint with uh, watercolors aren't real artists. Only real artists use oils. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's an art argument rather than a trade argument. If you're trying to say, I am a certified blacksmith, show me your certification. If you tell me you're a blacksmith, then I assume that you work with metal and a forge. That's all I assume. I don't assume that you have an accreditation for that. If I say I'm a professional blacksmith... I do it as my profession. I never say I'm certified or accredited. I just do it as my profession. Yeah, I mean, if you're managing to actually do the incredible of pulling off your full-time income from blacksmithing, you must be good enough to be able to call yourself a blacksmith. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Like, at the end of the day, I don't care if you call yourself a blacksmith if you've only ever swung a hammer at an anvil once. If You know, I don't care because it doesn't matter in the scheme of things. You wouldn't be able to go onto a building site and say, I'm an electrician because you wired up an RC car once, mm -hmm. but we're no longer in that area. Like we're no longer in the trades. So if you want to call yourself a blacksmith because you've made a couple of nails once, sure, go for it. Yeah. It's not going to, it's not going to hurt anyone. But, uh, do, 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 do the listeners want to hear an entire episode of this? Let us know. Yes, because we have so much more that we can say. We, we could rant for hours. And have. <laughs> and have. <laughs> Separately and together. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So our, uh, our next uh, message came through on Instagram, and it's from the person who has Sam's favorite Instagram username handle. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. the, it's the real puke vial. Oh, right. He says... <laughs> He says, hey guys, I've been thinking a lot lately about learning engraving work and getting into it. I want to start putting money towards getting a proper machine, but I would like to start small now. I'd like to get a Dremel, but I'm afraid I'd be wasting money on small garbage. 
uh, I see a lot of pneumatic engravers and think that's where I'd like to start but have no idea how they work or are set up and that kind of intimidates me. What are the benefits of either one and what's easier to use? Thanks for taking the time to read. I look forward to hearing back. Have a great week. Love the real puke vial. Thanks for writing in. Love you too. Thank you. <laughs> Our listeners will remember he won the um, chopstick challenge. Yes. Yes. So um, I'll put in my very small two cents on this and then hand it over to the uh, the absolute undisputed engraver of the show. Um, <laughs> I When it comes to the rotary side of things, I've never used an air pneumatic graver uh, before but the rotary side of things um, I do use a Fordham SR uh, and you can actually get a fairly inexpensive head that is a, they call it a hammer attachment um, that is sort of a reciprocating hammer head that does have interchangeable tips that you can put gravers into um, I have not tried it and I don't know how effective it would be I just know that they do sell graver tips for it um, they're not that Considering how how handy a Fordham is and how useful it is, they're not that expensive. Uh, if you are making uh, sort of quality pieces that you are selling for decent prices, it's a good investment. You will get the money back on your investment. If you're just a hobbyist playing around, maybe just get a, a Dremel if you're going to go the rotary route. Um, but it's it's a different kind of engraving to the sort of thing that you would get from a pneumatic um, engraver or doing it by hand but it, that being said Sam's the engraving expert on the show <laughs> uh, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm far from an expert but yeah out of the two of us I suppose I've done more of it <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so there is a definite difference between rotary engraving and uh, pneumatic or um, mechanical engraving of any kind um the, the, the key difference, is, of course, is that Rotary uses uh, burrs or stones to remove material, whereas uh, normally you're using a chisel tip of some kind to cut lines in steel or copper or whatever. Um, if you're looking to get into pneumatic graving or making scrolls and stuff like that, Rotary graving is not going to help you, like, at all. Um... I would highly suggest getting a Fordham just because they are incredibly useful for a lot of things. Like, they're a great investment. Mm. Um, I would actually, these days, after now having had my Fordham for a long time, um, would recommend, if you're looking at getting into craftsmanship of any kind that involves doing small detail work, don't buy a Dremel, just save up for a Fordham. Yeah. Because it does everything that a Dremel does, but better... And there are other things that it does that a Dremel can't do. It's, it's, so, <laughs> it's not wank. They are genuinely that good. Yes. And like, do, like just just the pedal speed control makes it a million times better than Dremel. And the torque. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And the, the, the torque, the reach, the, you know, like everything about it is just better. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like there's a reason that like no jeweler on the planet uses a Dremel. Yeah. Uh, they use Fordhams because there's a reason. Um, or they there's use a reason there's just... almost no competing brand that can yeah. hold a candle to them. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's they they kind of worked out the the formula and it just works. Yeah. But yeah, so I, like if you're gonna if you're gonna get into knife making or engraving of any kind, like any kind of uh, engraving or 
little fine detail work, get a Fordham, because, like, you can have that many attachments for it. When it comes to the hammer attachment for Fordhams, I haven't got one personally, but I've seen them, and I've held one that a friend of mine has. Would not recommend it to use for engraving, because they are a little bit more um, powerful than a standard uh, pneumatic uh, vibratory engraver. Right. Uh, if you've ever seen a pneumatic vibratory engraver go, you can't actually see it vibrate, right? Like, it looks like they're just pushing along. I will, I will just is, interject mm, something here. The Fordham engra- uh, hammer attachment actually is adjustable. The stroke length uh, yeah. is, is adjustable. And the lower setting, you can't see it move. Right. Um, the other thing is, of course, the angle of the hand. Because oh, the yeah. hammer attachment is straight, you can't really hold it like you would hold uh, an engraving tool, uh, like on a... Um, a GRS system or something like that. GRS being one of the best brands of pneumatic gravers that there are on the market. And They're the ergonomics of it as well, um, which yeah, you exactly. see in Alex Steele's recent videos on the Sham Share. He's actually got something that sort of sits in the palm of his hand and allows... Yeah, that's a pneumatic graver, yeah. So um, they're, they're very much similar to push gravers. And actually, if you wanted to go the pneumatic graving route, I would actually recommend getting into push graving. Uh, it's actually really easy to do. You can make your own push gravers. Um, you can buy push graver handles on eBay for like $5 for 10 of them. Um, you can even buy a push graver, like blanks and stuff like that off eBay for relatively cheap. Um, you can't really push grave steel that well, but it's great for copper, shibuichi, shakudo, brass, cop bronze, all those kind of non-ferrous metals. Um, and the, the action is very similar to, uh, uh, what you would use with a, a pneumatic system. Um, if you want to go like the more traditional route, like I have uh, Japanese style engraving or European style engraving, um, it's very different to how you would interact with pneumatic gravers, but the interaction between graver and steel or graver and, and material is always going to be the same. Um, so that's also a good way to start. But if you really want to get into, uh, pneumatic engraving and doing scroll work and stuff like that, push graving is probably the way to go. Um, Sam Alfano on YouTube did a really good video on push graving and how to get into it and how to sharpen push gravers. Um, so definitely worth a look at his work. Um, Uri Tukman has a video on making one too, doesn't he? He does. He does indeed. Um, previous interviewee on the, on the Forgecast. Um, and other than that, the other thing I can recommend uh, investing in is a ball vice. Um, yeah. You can get a cheap one from eBay. I bought mine, I think it was like 130 150 bucks, something like that, Australian. Uh, it's not fantastic, but it holds everything I need to, and it is rotary, so I can rotate it. Yeah. Um, between that and a good set of Optivisors, that's pretty much you set to do most graving. Um, it's a very in-depth topic and, you know, there are so many different things you can do in the world of engraving and the inlay and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but yeah, hopefully that helps. Ball vice, push gravers and an optimizer. Good way to start. Hopefully that, uh, yeah, gets you started. Now, there was one other thing, uh, so many people wrote in about this. I don't know whether, they, they just... Me and personally on my account and the Forgecast account, I'm not sure if Sam you got um, 
people linking to this fella that's uh, forging with his bare hands and asking what we think about it. I've um, seen it everywhere, but I haven't like been messaged about it. I yeah. was waiting for it. Yeah, it's about 25 different people have, have messaged in about it. Um, I just wanted to say a few words about it. <laughs> I, <do. laughs> I got a few words myself. It's, I would say it is, it is my opinion. Like, good on him for going viral. Like, mm-hmm. you know, as some, as somebody, a craftsman that's trying to get yourself out there, going viral is the dream. That's what you want. Um, one thing though, is you do have a bit of a social responsibility on that sort of thing. When you do go viral or you get media into film, you're doing that sort of thing. It's important that they show it, they depict it correctly. And in a lot of the edits of the footage of him, they don't clearly enough show that he is wetting his hand before yeah, doing it. Dunking um, his hand literally every hit. Yeah, um, which is somewhat protecting his hand through the light of frost effect, etc., etc. But not depicting that uh, and then going viral, there's a risk that like some someone young or inexperienced is going to see that and then try it and not notice that he is wetting his hand. Um, and then getting some fairly severe burns because it really, <laughs> no matter how fast you are, you're going to burn yourself quite severely if you don't wet your hand thoroughly. Also, you will not get the control that you could get um, even with just a, a stick. Yeah. You know, a, a good size, like, inch round bit of dowel will give you more control than the underside of your fist. Yeah. I mean, it's it's done for eyes. Yeah. Like, your reaction, the reaction of those people who are messaging us and the reaction of those people who are putting it out everywhere going, look at this idiot, you're the reason he did it. <laughs> like, you know, at the end of the day, it's putting him in front of people. I'm That's... genuinely happy for him that he's getting the exposure. I, I, oh, yeah, big time. It's great to see someone doing it. Hell, I'd even have him on the show. Um, I like honestly when I saw it and I saw how many people were outraged by it I was legitimately considering doing a video doing it myself oh yeah like, it's the salt bay <laughs> of it is but the thing is like again if you understand the principles of the lead and frost effect and you know that kind of thing then it's not that big of a deal um, but that social obligation uh, that, yeah, that the responsibility, social obligation responsibility you have of being in front of people like that Especially if you go viral and kids can see that. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it yeah. could have been better shot. It could have been, you know, like, better... I, yeah, I don't see it as his depicted. fault. I see it as the fault of the, the news crew or whatever it was that got that footage and filmed it and edited it together. Like, to, be, to an extent, he maybe should have, you know, made sure that they did show it. But at the same time, I've dealt with those sorts of people before and they, they don't listen to you. I believe he got his start on TikTok. I've seen a few TikTok videos shared around Facebook of him doing it. Yeah, right. So I, I think he has depicted himself without showing it as accurately as he could. I've also seen a video of him explaining what he's doing and why. Um, Which sometimes can be too little too late if you do well, it yeah. a separate well, video. And no one watches that. Like, no, no one watches the follow-up. No. <laughs> they see the viral video. That's the important part. Yeah. Um, and it's too... Yeah, it's way too late by then. But, yeah. Like, as far as what he's doing... Um, I, who cares? The the main issue that is to t- take away with it is social responsibility. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, like as, as far as, you know, we'll look at this idiot, he, he's going to hurt himself. No, he's not. He knows what he's doing. Yeah, he does. Like, he's, he, he's, it's not doing anything that you couldn't do with literally a stick. Um, or a hammerhead held in your hand. But yeah. like, he's doing it for, for views and so that he can say that it's literally head for, hand forged. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> like, um, you know, so yeah, I, I don't know. People yeah. making a mountain out of a molehill with that stuff, but yeah, just wanted to address it given the sheer volume of people that have messaged us about it. Yes, so even between us recording this and it going out, we'll probably get a dozen more people. Oh, I guarantee it, or I'll see it posted on Facebook like six more times. Yeah, but uh, the due to the nature of the internet, by the time this episode comes out, that viral trend will have passed. <laughs> and it'll be and it'll be onto something else. That's right. But what, what about uh, naked. what about inspiration, Sam? Who's been inspiring you this week? Well, that's a good question. I um I had a, a long think about like who I wanted to be my inspiration this um this time. But uh it was it was really hard to come across one because I've I've spent so much time inside my own head, it's been really hard to kind of um <laughs> focus outside um outside that sounds scary outside yeah is scary it is indeed scary um and after like consideration uh i ended up choosing an old friend of mine who um i don't think i've named her as an inspiration before but she is actually one of the people who inspired me to get into bladesmithing in the beginning, and she's been very supportive of me uh, through my bladesmithing career. Uh, and she is a well-recognized journeyman smith in the American Bladesmith Society. She's been relatively inactive due to health concerns and family stuff, but she has maintained so much of her knowledge and so much of her giving nature in sharing that knowledge with me and anyone who'll ask, um, that we, I, I could we had one of her biggest fans on the show last week. <laughs> we did. Um, so yeah, the, the person I'm talking about is of course D hedges, um, from Darkwood Forge. Um, or is it Darkwoods? I think it might be Darkwoods. I'm a fake fan. Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, no, D, um, like I came across D's work back when I first started, um, bladesmithing and it's dark woods. It's with an S. Uh, <laughs> um, I came across her work earlier in, in my bladesmithing career, like as a hobbyist and, uh, it was cool cause she was a Perth local and she was well known, well regarded throughout the world. Um, she'd, you know, hung out with guys like Rick Furrer and, you know, all of the, the big boys. She's, uh, personal friends with Don Fogg, uh, who developed the patterns of Forge that we still use. Uh, <laughs> so like she's, she is an incredibly talented person. Um, and her blades, if you go back through her archives are incredible like they're really really clean really really neat and she has a real passion for like the odd and the weird and the slightly uh like more artistic 
style of things. Like she's a very art knife kind of maker mm-hmm. and specializes in mixing jewelry and, and knife making, right? She's, she's a jeweler and a knife maker. And one of the projects that she was working on when we first met was a pure silver, sterling silver TIE fighter, um, like mm. amulet. <laughs> it was great. Um, and, you know, like, Dee and I became pretty good friends after meeting at a hammer-in that we had here in Perth. And, uh, you know, we talked on and off. And, you know, we're, we're still in contact, re- like, today. And she's recently gone through a surgery, um, like, a really serious surgery that was potentially life-threatening. And um, she goes through so many physical boundaries to continue going. And, like, she's keeping on that path. It's insane. Like, I, I couldn't imagine carrying the amount of weight that she has to carry with everything that's going on in her life. And obviously a lot of that's private for her, so I'm not going to, you know, out that to the public. But, um, yeah, she's an incredibly strong woman and um, an incredibly uh, talented artist. And I can't wait, given that she's now come through this surgery, I'm, I am constantly pestering her to make sure that she remembers that when she gets better, she is going to be in the forge with me. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, it's gonna happen. <laughs> Maybe um, she can get you doing some more knives again. Well, that'd be nice. Um, but yeah, I, I hate to see her little 25-pound little giant power hammer just, you know, like, sitting, collecting dust. <laughs> uh, you know, I want to blow the dust off it and, and get some uh, get some steel under it. Um, but yeah, so, like... Um, she consistently inspires me with uh, her, who she is as a person and the, the strength that she has in her day-to-day life. And as a craftsperson, like, she's given me some awesome hints on guard fit-ups and, you know, blade geometry and stuff like that in just general conversation that we've had. So if there's anyone who's given me inspiration, it's definitely Dee, uh, more than uh, so many others that I've already named and I feel bad for waiting this long. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, you can check her out on Instagram. It's Darkwoods Forge, all one word. Um, like I said, she hasn't posted Blade content in a decade um, because of like all of the issues that she's had to deal with. And you know, like I'm super excited, but also want to keep a little bit back just to make sure that you know I don't get too too over enthused <laughs> to see her get back into the workshop and making some stuff again. Anyway, who's inspiring you, Alex? Um, I have to admit, this is a bit of a cheat. This isn't an inspiration from this week. It was actually, um, I really wanted to have him as my inspiration last week. Um, mm. But we had Niels on the show, and when we have a guest, <laughs> we don't we don't get to have an inspiration of the week. Yeah. Uh, but he does, in general, inspire me as well. It's just, this is related to last week. Um, and... He's probably going to gush when he hears this, but it's it's Broden, um, who uh, my, my good friend he goes by Brother Dot Odin on Instagram. Um, he competed in the Forty Eight Hour Dagger Challenge. Um, competed? He fucking slayed it. Well, that's it. Like that, it was his first attempt at it, and he's actually only been making knives for probably just under eighteen months. Mm. Um, he had just gotten when i met him he came to do a class with me um he'd just gotten back after living in canada for a while and um snowboarding and and all this sort of dude bro stuff 
um, <laughs> and he came back and um, was just sort of looking for things to do because he's an, he's a, just one of those natural born artists. He's um, just got the gift. Um, and he was looking for artistic things to throw himself at, and he found my classes and um, came to do one and then another and then another um, and really enjoyed it. And he took up knife making um, and just started relentlessly studying everything that he could find, just consuming volumes, like going to the libraries and taking out every book that they had on historical weapons and things like that and just absorbing it like a freaking sponge um and just constantly inundating me with questions and now he inundates sam with questions and he'll inundate neils with questions and anybody that'll listen to him will inundate with questions because he's just he's got this hunger to learn more and more and more and then he can apply it scarily well as mm. was evidenced in the 48-hour dagger challenge. Now, in the lead-up to this, um, it was pure luck that he was able to compete because he does not do this full-time. This is something that he's like weekend warrior because he's, he's got a, a normal job. Um, but coincidentally, he was booked to go off and do some training in Queensland Monday to, that Monday to Wednesday, and because of lockdowns and things, it got cancelled and he had the time off work. And so he's like, that's it, I'm doing it. And I, I was t- saying, saying to him, look, Broden, this is, this is not a thing for the faint-hearted. Um, and he's like, yeah, well, now you mention it, I live in the, sort of, in the suburbs and I can't really run my equipment past sundown, otherwise the neighbours start complaining. And I'm like, well, if you're, you know, if you're keen enough, you can come out and use my workshop. And he's like, done, we're doing it. And two weekends before we worked to prep this incredible Damascus that he used for the dagger. Damascus so good that it even impressed Niels, and Niels wants to steal the pattern. <laughs> and um, forged that, like properly forged the tip and everything to get the pattern distortion and all that sort of thing. And he did this hollow ground, like Italian style stiletto dagger with a multi-part handle faux ivory uh, wrought iron fittings and all that sort of thing. It was ambitious as hell. Um, and he pulled it off. He did it. He he ran down to the wire. Like, he was working so hard, I had to kick him out uh, of my mm. place at, at, at one point. I felt horrible doing it, but um, my illness was actually really badly affecting me, and I was trying not to let on to him because he was, like, in the zone. Um, and after about three hours, I realized I just couldn't, uh, <laughs> I couldn't <laughs> cope with it anymore. I had to go and take care of my, my health, and um, I felt bad, but he just went home and just, as everybody saw, slayed it, as Sam so adequately put it. Um, made a beautiful dagger um, that was ambitious for anybody that it had entered in, let alone him. And the thing that, like, I, I didn't really have that much doubt that he was going to pull it off because I've seen him pull off some wild stuff. Um, but the thing that inspires me about him, and I've never actually directly told him this because the old man in me, the crotchety old man that I am, because I may only be 34, but I feel about 96. Um, <laughs> Amen. And he will describe things he wants to do that... I've done enough now with blacksmithing and bladesmithing to know how much work they are. 
Mm. Um, and when you're in your mid-20s like Broden is, you still feel like you've got the energy to do that much work. And so I sort of, I internally, I'm like, oh, I've got to try and convey how much work that is. Uh, but although we did that f- uh, on my YouTube channel, he featured in a video where we made, um, in air quotes here, Feather Damascus, um, mm. which is actually a bifurcated Turkish twist Damascus, but that's not as catchy. Um, so at, at the end of that day, he turned to me and he's like, yeah, I get what you're saying now. That was a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> and he sort of toned it down since then. But the thing that inspires me about him consistently is he is fearless when it comes to the things he makes. His mm. ambition in what he wants to create, and it's not for fame, it's not for glory, it's not for, you know, money. He very, you know, doesn't really sell that many pieces and things like that. It's because it's cool. And yeah. it's, it's always, wouldn't it be cool if... And really, like we were saying before with Jeremy's email... We're artists, and if you think of something that uh, you know is cool enough, it lives kind of rent-free in your brain, and it eats at you, and, and you just realize that thing has to exist now. It has <laughs> been it has been conceived of, and thus it must exist, and only I can do it. And Broden kind of lives in that world, but you know, people like. You know, I, I know I'm guilty of it. I know Sam's guilty of it. You'll have an idea and you'll think, nah, that's, not, that's too much work. No way am I going to try that. That's just too crazy. Maybe later. Maybe maybe sometime in the future. The thing One that, day. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's like, oh, maybe when I have spare time or something like that. The thing that inspires me about Broden, which was uh, made manifest in the 48-hour dagger challenge, was that he would think of these things... And instead of thinking, maybe I'll do that another time, um, he'll like, let's do it now. Let's go. You know, he's, he's, he's hanging out to make like Jason Ellard style mosaic Damascus on my log splitter press. <laughs> and he knows how much work it is. But the thing is, like, even making the, the, the billet, doing a twist on the billet that uh, he ended up using for the 48 hour. He got worked it down to thirty mil and then went to twister and I'm like, You're not <laughs> good luck, you know. <laughs> You're not gonna have much luck twisting that. And he threw himself at it physic with the same amount of physical energy as he has mentally for tackling obstacles. And he twisted it three and a half times mm-hmm. in that one heat. And I I would had to actually hold on to like lie on my side and hug the stump that the the post vice was attached to in order to stop it from <laughs> rotating he was throwing that much energy into it and like joint effort <laughs> yeah and it's just that kind of fearlessness we should all be inspired by because True that's that. that's that's how the great things are made that's how the 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 artifacts are made that that exist uh, and and persist throughout history because somebody was fearless enough to actually do it yeah so, yeah. Cool. Good on you, Broden. He's probably going to ugly cry when he hears this. Probably. Nah, he doesn't ugly cry. He's too cool for that. <laughs> He's too much man. <laughs> man! But, um, yeah. Anyway, tool of the week. Mm. Which means it's tool time. Tool time. 
And Tool Time this week comes flying at you thanks to the team at Nordic Edge. So make sure to visit nordicedge.com.au straight after the show to stock up on all of their delicious knife-making goodness today. And Tool of the Week this week is in theme with our topic of the week, and it is Hot Cuts. Yes. Which come in many shapes and sizes and attractiveness. Mine is very ugly. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so <laughs> I've I've been told that um, like I'm doing a trade with Seth Wood. Um, mm. I've made made him a knife, and he's making me a hammer. And he said that um, he wants to throw in a hardy tool of my choosing. And I'm like, oh, please make it a hot cut. Mine is so ugly. <laughs> <laughs> but they're a, they are a amazingly useful thing. And the thing is, the reason I bring up their ugliness is usually people can't be bothered forging one properly as an integral one-piece thing. And because of that, they end up being... Um, they're sort of a bit janky. They don't quite work right. They wobble a bit or something Fabric like cobbled. that. Fabric cobbled. And because of that, people don't use them as much as they should. They think, well, I've got a battery-powered angle grinder. I'll just use that. <laughs> but the fact is the versatility of a correctly used hot cut should not be uh, cast aside so readily. Absolutely not. Uh, and one of the best examples I can find of the precision that you can get with a hot cut compared to something like an angle grinder or a hacksaw is our um, tool of the week from a couple of, couple of episodes ago, the nail header, when you're making nails. Because mm-hmm. a lot of applications in blacksmithing is uh, cutting something almost all the way through. Yeah. Which, if you're doing with an angle grinder, you can't just do from one angle. You've got to do it a bit, and then you've got to actually, you know, unclamp it from the vise, rotate it 90 degrees, and then cut through again to get that little tail holding it on. And one slip, and it's it's over. You've gone too far. Or maybe you might hold off a little bit uh, and go too thick, and then when you try and twist it off, it ends up warping on you. Um, hot cuts have a technique behind them in how to use them. And yes. there are straight-edged hot cuts. There are rounded-edged hot cuts. There are um, different... Um, some have thin blades. Some have quite obtuse blades on them. And they all serve different functions and can work as butcher tools um, with the correct use of a hammer on top of it. And a butcher tool in a guillotine tool, as like the one that uh, Sam Towns makes and sells, uh, is a when, when he finally gets them fucking done. <laughs> that's right. Is actually a, an incredibly useful tool. Uh, and a lot of people don't realize you can do that function on a hot cut hardy. Mm-hmm. Mm. It was the uh, the cutoff disc of the medieval blacksmith. Yeah, and the, the thing is that you can cut literally any size of stock with a hot cut. Oh, yeah. Um, and I've tested <laughs> mine. <laughs> I mean, it does, you know... It, it, it's it's not fun to cut forty mil round with a hot cut and a and a three pound hammer. You just but need it a can sharper hot cut. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's not fun in any in any retrospect. But uh, you know, it it can be done and it has been done. I know that because I've done it myself. 
I mean, um, it can even be used on cold steel if it's a properly yeah. hard and hot cut to uh, put marking. Because uh, th- normally, if you've ever used a, like a cold chisel, for example, to mark out distances on a bar of steel, for uh, as a good example, you're sort of awkwardly holding the bar and then you're trying to wrangle the hot cut and the hammer with one hand and it's not quite working right. It's much easier to just hold the bar in one hand, have it all marked off with chalk, and then just hold it over the hot cut and give it a tap. And, it, you know, it just it just works. Um, I've actually shown students that while they were trying to do the three-hand shuffle. Um, and they're like, oh, I didn't, just didn't even think of that. So you just think of it as a thing for cutting things off. But it's not the only purpose. Yeah, one of my, one of my favorite uh, uses of a hot cut that I've ever seen was in that uh, old video of Albert Craven, uh, The Last Blade Forger in Sheffield. Uh, where you see him cutting the tangs on folding knife blades, and he literally positions the tang of the the folding knife blade over the a very very sharp hot cut, one hit and cuts it three you know two thirds of the way through, and then uses that to dress his offset to to make the uh, a step down tang much like on a friction folder, hmm. um. And it's done so quickly and so cleanly. <laughs> in, like, and he does it multiple times in the video. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're, they're incredibly useful. And you can make hotcuts that are depth stop hotcuts. Yeah, like, uh, as you, in nail maker forges. Yeah, in the old nail making days. Uh, if you, there's a couple of videos out there of, of uh, old nail makers have that have uh, depth stop hotcuts that are specifically made for making nails. So that the hammer will impact the two thicker edges uh, either side of the cut uh, of the of the actual blade so that it doesn't cut all the way through so that they don't have to measure their blows as much. Yeah, because um, yeah, you don't want to blast through and hit the... Uh, even if you're cutting something all the way through, you don't want to um, strike the hot cut with your hammer face even lightly. It will gouge it. Well, that's it. It'll either damage your hot cut if your hot cut's very soft, or it'll damage your hammer face if the hot cut's harder than the hammer. Yeah. Uh, neither is fun. My hot cuts are normally hardened, but they're normally forty-one forty, which is quite soft anyway. Um, and if I hit them with a the hammer, normally the hot cut's the thing that gets injured because it's easier to sharpen the, that than to grind a gouge out of my hammer face. Mm-hmm. Even though I prefer softer hammers. You know, it's one of those things. Everything around me just gets softer and softer. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, working on yeah. me, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, like, uh, you don't want to blast through with a hot cut at all uh, in any case. Because you, you always want to leave that little bit extra that you can then wiggle off. Um, even, and for it also the sake of, from... even for the sake of not having a hot piece of steel fly off into your shop. I was literally about to say that, yeah, yeah. like like Landed I did the uh, <laughs> like I did on the chisel forging stream that I did a little while, uh, like a couple weeks back, um, where I was hot cutting from the top with a hot set chisel, and uh, the 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 tip of the chisel went flying across the room and started setting fire to my desk. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it 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 can be useful to not cut all the way through. Yeah, and it, it does. Um... Another useful um, use for them is to, if you've ever uh, cut down using, say, a, a hot cut chisel, like a walking chisel or slitting chisel to, um, let's say you're putting a fork in the end of a bar, 
you've cut your your groove even if you've used a hacksaw or an angle grinder to cut your groove you can then heat that up and separate those two forks off left and right by placing that that vertically over the hot cut and hammering down into the hot cut a really good yep. way to separate them out nice and evenly um, but it does highlight the importance of keeping it dressed uh, yes. It's one of, one of the um, least looked after tools in a <laughs> blacksmith shop. <laughs> um, but you want it to be, oh, depending on the, the purpose of, uh, like I said, a lot of um, uh, more well-tooled blacksmith shops will have multiple hot cuts in multiple sizes. Some of them need to be quite sharp. Some of them don't. Um, that, that being said, if you do have one that is kept sharp, the one that I have in my shop is kept sharp enough that you could... You know, shave fairly thick leg hair with it. <laughs> um, but having that mounted in your hardy hole actually presents a bit of a danger that uh, a lot of people don't realize. Mm. If, while you're swinging uh, your hand up and down with a hammer, um, you, you don't want to accidentally miss and punch this blade that's pointed upwards uh, off the face of your anvil that's uh, heavily reinforced behind it. Um, it's a good way to lose fingers. So... Keep it dressed, but be aware of it. Uh, it doesn't. Yeah. Ta- it really doesn't take long to redress a hot cut. Oh and, hell no! Not an, even with a file. An eighty grit, <laughs> eighty grit belt on a grinder or a file, and you've got yourself an apex ridge again, and it's back in business. Yeah, you don't need a you know two you know don't need a two thousand grit you know mirror polished uh, razor sharp edge on your hot cut. <laughs> there are benefits, uh, pros and cons to uh, both. Um, sort of convex surfaces uh, like blades and flat blades i prefer a convex uh, like a subtle convex curve to mine Um, yeah mine too yeah i find it i find it works better for more applications i used to have a flat bladed one um yeah but uh i'd I'd say it's going to be down to a personal preference you may end up making multiple like we said yeah and i prefer a more uh fine hot cut than a obtuse one um yeah mine's a six mil thick blade yeah i think mine's about that too um i i've used both obtuse and thin bladed hot cuts and i've found that the thin bladed hot cuts do everything that the thick bladed ones do just better yeah um you don't need that extra mass is the big thing (laughs) yeah um the only time where the obtuse one is helpful is uh like you said splitting apart a fork um because it you know obviously has the wider sides but in that case, you could make a uh, like a to- a bottom fuller, uh, like a really narrow bottom fuller um, yeah. that has that obtuse sidage. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so there you go. Hot cuts. Important. Yeah, which carry us into our topic of the week. Now, the response was pretty overwhelming, actually, because <laughs> um, we did our episode on medieval, the, like the realities of medieval blacksmithing, and. Um, we put out in that episode whether or not, like, normally this is an educational channel. Normally we're teaching you stuff, and we thought, well, we'd sort of waffled about history for a while. Is that the sort of thing you want to hear more of? And, yeah, the response was pretty extremely in the positive. Uh, we I got, don't think I saw one negative. <laughs> we got comments, we got messages, both on the Forgecast and our private account saying, yes, please, more of that. So, um... Mm-hmm. You know we we are a slave to our fans. Yeah, <laughs> so um, yeah, part two of part X. two, <laughs> part two of two of however many it ends up becoming. That, that's right. 
we won't do it every week. But <laughs> um, yeah, I, I thought we might uh, discuss the importance in medieval blacksmithing, and it's something that um, modern smiths aren't as familiar with of forge welding. Yeah. Now, one of the things that we take for granted as modern smiths, especially beginner modern smiths coming into the industry, is that we can literally buy bars of steel of any size we want. Like, we can buy... And alloy. Yeah, we can buy one millimeter, like, (laughs) the wire stock, or we can buy 500 millimeter or one meter wide brown stock (laughs) of any alloy you can imagine. If you have the money for it, you will find someone who's manufacturing it for you. Um, (laughs) And that's just something that didn't occur in the medieval age. You know, from, from the early bronze age, all the way, like from the late bronze age, all the way through to the Renaissance, you didn't have manufacturers rolling out sheets or, uh, you know, manufacturing bars and stuff like that en masse for regular consumption. You had some, um, you know, like townships and some some um, early forms of factory that would create stuff like trade bars, which are just iron bars uh, of a specific size, normally uh, around one and a half pounds, two pounds of iron, um, that would go onto ships to be traded with people that they ran into. But... Um, that wasn't until the age of sale, you know, like 1600s, 1700s. So before that, you would have to know how to forge weld. Like, you had to. There was no way around it. Yeah. Um, and not only did you know have to know how to forge weld, you had to know how to do every kind of forge weld. You couldn't just get away with doing a standard laminate weld like we do with Damascus. That is, you know, for, for better parts of the uh you know medieval ages you would be doing that only to create larger bars and um actually um two-time past forgecast guest roy adams did an extensive series on all of the different forge worlds he could find yeah he did and he did a very good job of it too and he also showcases forge welding without flux and with flux yeah um, I don't believe he did fluxing with silica sand or like quartz sand. No, um, but I don't think he did. like Joey Vandersteg has done many, many videos using quartz sand as a flux for forge welding. The Lord of forge welding. Uh, he is honestly like you watch all of his videos. You will pick up a lot about forge welding from him. He's the only blacksmith um, I know that has his name turned into a verb. <laughs> yeah. You got to Vandersteg it. That's it. Um, but yeah, so the, the thing is that as a, as a medieval blacksmith, let's, let's, uh, say 1200, you know, like post, uh, the Viking age, you know, you're, you're getting into more plentiful iron production. You still got the majority of your iron is going to be coming in the form of scrap, uh, of old sword blades of, you know, old wagon wheels and springs from carriages, um, door fittings and stuff like that. If you're lucky, you're in a shop that has access to a refinery that actually is making uh, bloomery iron, and in which case it's normally coming in bloomery form. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so at that stage, you have a mass of various really weirdly shaped pieces of iron that are useless for the, the thing you need to make. The only way you're going to make it is by forge welding. 
That's it. And you're going to need to be able to forge weld it in laminate to create bigger bars out of small bars. You're going to need to be able to forge weld as a scarf weld to create longer bars out of shorter bars. Um, you're going to need to be able to do uh, cleft welds where you're, you know, cutting a cleft in one and inserting a, a, a bit because even, uh, you know, up until the 14, 1500, you're still very, very limited on your steel supply. Yeah. Iron becomes plentiful, but steel is still expensive as shit and really hard to find. And so you wouldn't make an axe out of tool steel. Not like today. No, you wouldn't make an axe out of wrought iron and you would insert a tool steel bit. Um, And, you know, even swords most of the time were edged with tool steel. Um, And the majority of it was iron. And so they would just bend instead of, you know, flexing like we are used to these days because steel was incredibly expensive and very hard to come by. And in the less developed parts of Europe and, and stuff like that, they didn't really understand how it was done. They just knew that some iron hardened and some didn't, and they didn't know why, they just knew it did happen. Yeah. <laughs> Their iron is stronger than ours. <laughs> oh, God, I hate that fucking scene. I hate that scene. Uh, fuck. The funny, anyway. thing, the funny thing is, actually, um, the uh, church's persecution against, uh, quote-unquote, witchcraft... Um, extended quite a ways across Europe, um, but stopped at the doors of every blacksmith's forge because they yes. they did for a long time see the ability to fuse pieces of metal together as magic. Oh yeah, and the church Centuries. the church actually chose to give the blacksmiths a pardon uh, for their ability to do it. Um, it, because it it was a, such a necessary craft that they realised they couldn't they couldn't <laughs> get away with uh, persecuting them. Yeah, I, I mean, in Eastern Europe, um, like in the Ukraine and, and Russia and stuff like that, it was quite common for uh, black magic and the devil to be associated with blacksmithing, mm. right? Um, a lot of uh, blacksmith legends um, from that era or from that period and in those areas were about blacksmiths being. Uh, in somehow, in some way, connected to the devil. Yeah, usually feared um, by the devil. Yeah, yeah. There's um, there's a great um, movie that was made. It was like a horror movie, but it's also based on a historical concept called Eremintari, and it's the blacksmith and the devil, literally. Um, <laughs> and it's actually about a folk, like folk myth, about a blacksmith who has captured the devil. And is torturing it because he made a deal with it in order to survive a thing to meet his family. And it turns out that the family had already been killed and the devil had taken their souls. Um, And so, yeah, like, it's a whole thing. And it's a really good movie if you should watch it. It's on Netflix. Uh, (laughs) But, yeah, a lot of blacksmiths were considered magicians, black magicians, because they would take this dirty, mangy shit, throw it in a forge cause sparks and fire and all kinds of doom make dust clouds that covered the city and then out would come this shiny piece of steel hmm. 
And you can imagine from like a layman's perspective in that period, you're like, what did you do? <laughs> what is this magic? And the, the strange thing is you sort of, the, the, the mental image that pops up of a blacksmith in medieval times is um, something that looks largely like Sam, really. A sort of <laughs> bear of a man with a, be- a big beard and covered in soot and a big apron on and all that sort of thing, um, which is probably largely true. But the thing is, a lot of them were quite wealthy and they were quite prominent figures in the, the mm. towns that they lived. Um, and so much so were they relied upon uh, and um, they it was sort of taking on so many different types of jobs and crafts uh, and being so necessary and sought after and and looked to that they were often um, put into social positions of power or or looked to during crisis and things like that for advice. Uh, Especially in the early stages of the medieval period. hmm, Because they were thought of as these important people. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting, actually, because like that during the Viking period and stuff like that, blacksmiths were very highly regarded. Um, as you move into the the Renaissance and like 1500 and onwards, blacksmiths started to become more and more viewed as subhuman, um, as lesser. And that, that carries on even today in India where the blacksmith class is like the lowest class. They actually call them the untouchables. Um, and that was to do with the the uh, like the advent of industry and stuff like that, and the advent of aristocracy and the idea of cleanliness and the idea of uh, beauty and you know and uh, color being somehow better than being dirty. So therefore, blacksmiths became this this dirty thing. Like yes, they were incredibly necessary, but at the same time, they themselves were unimportant. It was just the things that they made that were important. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if you were a blacksmith that couldn't make beautiful things, you were literally useless. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's really interesting how, like in the beginnings of the Iron Age, blacksmiths became very, very highly vaunted and then very quickly became like the, the butt of humanity. <laughs> um, to the point that like into the industrial era, when you're talking about like the, the late 1800s, um, to be a blacksmith was to literally be as uh, on the same level as a coal miner, you know, <laughs> just, you know, dirty dude who does the hard work and everyone else gets to have the good stuff because of it. But don't no direct, one cares about don't them. look directly at him. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing for me, like I, I've always come back to that saying that, uh, the, the modern world came off the face of the anvil. Yeah. Um, everything that we have now, is because of those people who were forging the way, literally, um, <laughs> at the very beginning of the Iron Age, to create iron tools and to improve iron tools and to improve our understanding of metallurgy and stuff like that. And all of that came about because we learned how to manipulate the material we had at hand. And coming back to my original point, the only way to manipulate that material from the early Iron Age all the way through until only we're only talking 70 years, maybe not even a hundred years now that we've actually had access to bar stock in large quantities. Yeah. Before that forge welding was the only way to go. Like if you didn't know how to forge weld, you weren't a blacksmith. 
and it's it's funny that the uh, it is so unnecessary comparatively today that um, sort of mythos has generated around it. Um, like the you, you often hear it uh, when people are talking about glorious Nippon steel. <laughs> you know, as if yep. this this sword is better than any other t- type of sword because the metal has been folded a thousand times. It's been yes. folded a thousand times to get all the impurities out of it because it was shit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it, it's 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 funny because back then to fold the metal, draw it out, fold it, draw it out, fold it, draw it out, fold it, again and again and again repeatedly was not to make what well, was to make the steel better but it was to make the steel better by removing impurities it was a necessity mm-hmm. because the bloom or, or the even if it was actually uh, half steel um in more later periods in, in sort of europe european blacksmithing it was a way of refining the metal down um, yeah. that nat- needed to be done because setting up giant refineries and things just was not going to happen <laughs> Well, yeah, and and they hadn't discovered, like, the liquefaction process and stuff like that. Not deliberately, anyway. (laughs) No, no. I mean, well, I mean, they they had discovered it by meeting people from Asia and that kind of thing. But then, of course, religion comes into it and politics comes into it where they would uh, disregard the knowledge of the the savage, basically. Yeah. Until suddenly someone was like, hey, I, I came up with this idea that I totally didn't steal from the guy that we met in Jerusalem. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, wow, yes, now we have the ability to make crucible steel. And, you know, meanwhile, all of Asia and, you know, the Middle East are kind of like, cool, we've had this for 500 years. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the, you know, welcome to the 10th century, guys. Jeez. Yep, that's it. Um, <laughs> and and it's it's funny people don't don't often uh, think about those early origins of some of the most incredible techniques um, of ironwork mm. coming from places like India and the Middle East, mm, Sri Lanka. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's still a as uh, a very famous iron pillar in uh, somewhere in India. I can't remember exactly. Uh, yeah. Where. I- I know the one you're talking about. I can't yeah, remember and it doesn't it doesn't rust. Mm. And even today, there's debate as to why. Um, but it could probably be figured out pretty easily. But nobody's allowed to take samples of it because it's well, no, it's, cause... A, it's a it's <laughs> of quite significant religious significance, apparently. <laughs> yeah, and they won't even let people do like penetrating radar and stuff on it either. You know, so yeah. it's a bit weird. But you know, it is a bit weird. Um, you have to you know, like hold on to that mythos in some way. For, you do, you know, you do. National pride and stuff like that. It's it's like um, uh, Tamahagane. It's it's just a bloomery. Yeah, it's exactly. just that people say, "Well, it's it's not a real uh, katana unless it's made of Tamahagane." It's Tamahagane is just bloomery that was made by a particular family by a very specific exacting standards. It's still just a bloomery, though. Um, yeah, exactly. It's it's just bloom steel made from iron sand. Like, yeah, from that particular using, region. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's still it was made people a, think it's a different it's, it's a different type of thing. It's not. It's just a bloomery, and bloomeries have been made across the world for hundreds yeah, and, and hundreds of years. The only significant difference was the fact that they learned how to control the carbonization of the iron. 
um, through the construction of the Tatara, right? Like the the main difference between Tamahagane and Bloomery Iron was that Bloomery Iron was unreliable in its carbon content, whereas Tamahagane from Tatara, because of the methods that they used to construct the Tatara mm. and the way that the they fed the fire and all that kind methods. of stuff. Yeah, they, they, they took a lot of time and patience to work out exactly how to get the best result out of the material that they had. And whereas a normal sort of uh, European bloomery would be done over the course of you know, 8 to 16 hours, a Tamahagane is created over the course of about a week. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Just three non-stop days, it day is, and night. It is, it is the Texas brisket of bloomeries. <laughs> 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 yeah, so, like, that that was where, like, the Tamahagane was, like, really shone, uh, was the fact that they had perfected the method of creating a bloomery furnace that would allow them to create usable material. Mm. Um, and, you know, like, Europe caught up with them eventually. Well, there, the are, there are still individual, like, the... Um if if they can be believed, the properties of like the the, the steel and the Ufbert sword, for example, yeah. uh, show that somebody somewhere, um, if they are to be believed, somebody somewhere worked out a pretty damn good technique for making steel as well somewhere else. Um, well, that's it, and and it's important to remember uh, coming uh, like me- meeting with the original point and this point. Even in Woots, like even talking about the uh, the Middle East and Asia, talking about using crucible steel, almost none of the blades that we have recovered of crucible steel are of one piece of crucible steel. Because mm. you can't make uh, a billet that big. <laughs> well, it's not that they couldn't, it's just that they didn't have uh, the means to work that kind of material. And the larger the crucible becomes, the more chances you have of impurities, the more fuel is needed to melt the iron. There are so many different things that go into making a, a, a puck of woots, woots that it made it, it made no sense to make giant pucks. Also, <laughs> also like nowadays, if you're working on, uh, on say, like a woot sword, for example, if you're mad enough to make a woot sword... Um, I, I say that facetiously, obviously. I, it's just, I'm, I would be, consider myself mad if I attempted that. But if you were getting partway through it and you were actually going well for the first two-thirds of the forge uh, and then all of a sudden stuffed up part of it, nowadays you can you know, chuck it away, call Aaron Finn, get some more woots, and you're, you're set. But yeah. back then you would have to forge weld on new material and keep going because you could not afford to a lose the material that you'd started with and b the time invested yeah and and the the thing is that like um there's a great example of a lap welded woots blade in one of rick furrow's videos i believe it's him testing woots where he goes into, like, the the metallurgical properties of Woots, and one of the tulwar that he has from India is Woots, but it has a a really awesome wolf-tooth-patterned lap weld right in the middle of the blade, right? And it's it's welded almost like the elves welded Narsil together, (laughs) like that similar kind of pattern. And you know how we talk about that not being a real way to weld things? Well, they did it this way. (laughs) Elves are real. That's what I'm getting from this. Yeah, and they're from India. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, the, the thing for me was like, 
the forge welding was so important, even in the areas where they had um, monocrystalline steel, like where they had a steel that had no refinement necessary um, because it was already homogenous. They still had to be able to forge weld. Most Wootz blades had iron tangs, like forge welded on iron tangs. Um, and even like the uh, sabers of the Napoleonic era, like the um, you know early 1800s, most British and French and Italian and Finnish and Spanish sabers all had iron tangs with a steel blade. Yeah. Not only because it saved on material costs, because it really didn't, it's because of the ductility of iron compared to steel and, you know, increasing the shock resistance of the tang section of a military blade. And actually, most military blades would snap in the middle of the blade rather than at the tang, even though the tang transition is thinner. Yeah. Um, and that's because they normally had forge welded on iron tangs. <laughs> but yeah, the forge welding, like the the whole thing coming back full circle in the medieval age you could gatekeep blacksmithing by saying if you don't know how to forge weld you are not a blacksmith purely because you would be incapable of doing your job as a blacksmith if you couldn't forge weld yeah repeatedly and well yes and yeah exactly right you know getting two things to destroy metal Anybody, yeah, yeah uh, especially in coal forges, you can utterly ruin a piece. Absolutely, and not only that, but you can get two pieces to stick together okay, right? Like, you can have a weld that's, like, semi-decent, the pieces stay together, but unless it's really good, as like, a really good weld, it's going to fail. And if it fails, if it's a useful, if it's a piece that's being used in, you know, some other form of industry that could potentially hurt someone. Mm. Don't want that weld to fail. That's it. Yeah. Much like Boilermakers these days have to pass accreditation tests for their welds, um, blacksmiths back in the old days, they would test their welds pretty hard because God help you if, <laughs> if it failed in the hands of someone higher on the rankings than you. Somebody who holds the axe. Exactly. <laughs> Where is the blacksmith? I need to discuss something with him. A matter of some urgency. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, no, uh, I, I just thought it's a really interesting point. There are so many more things we can talk about historical medieval blacksmithing, and if you're interested in hearing more about that, please feel free to <laughs> yes, tell us. Spam us again. <laughs> yes, yeah, spam us again. We like the encouragement. <laughs> Sorry that I kind of took that and ran with it. Um, <laughs> no, no, go for it. I Me, steel and history. That's it. Sorry, I was distracted. Max is behind me and he's lying on his back being very cute. Hi, Max. <laughs> All right. So, guys, um, you you guys have really been going hard at this month's Forgecast Challenge. Um, and next month's. Uh, well, by the time this comes out, it'll also be this month's. So... <laughs> it's running until the end of September. Um, the participation so far has been off the charts. It's been the most popular Forgecast challenge we've done yet. Um, yeah, it's been fantastic. I've been really enjoying seeing the updates from people. Yeah, people have been doing a really good job too. Some people are already finished, um, which is really yeah, cool it's to see. crazy. Yeah. Um, I, um, 
have been, I know that Ryan has been very excited, and you've probably seen him buzzing around, following the, the hashtag and liking posts and commenting <laughs> yeah. and things. Uh, well, I mean, he made the first entry. So, his his entry was hilarious. <laughs> I nearly choked on a drink I was drinking when I saw it. True, true legend. Yeah, true legend. Absolutely. Now, guys, if you haven't. <laughs> yeah, it go go to Altway Fiddle. Uh, is it underscore Fiddleback? Altway Fiddle? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Altway yes. underscore Fiddleback on Instagram and look at his video. <laughs> um, but he has, if you missed for some reason, missed his episode. He is up to the prize. Um, it's blocks of stabilized by Dean Kasai, by the way, um, stabilized Otway fiddlebacked blackwood. Um, beautiful, beautiful, stunningly beautiful handle material. Um, and the first place gets three blocks. The second place gets two blocks. The third place gets a one block. Sam and I are not allowed to enter, unfortunately. Sadly. Sadly. I will be making an entry, though. Oh, yeah? I might be. If I find the time, I'd like to. I would really like to. Especially be- well, I- being a pipe smoker, I would very much like to own a pipe hawk. Me too. And, uh, like, the thing for me is that I spend so much time procrastinating doing absolutely nothing. I might as well spend time procrastinating doing something else. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Uh, right. So, um, yeah, if you're going to be um, entering and competing in that, use the hashtag... Forgecast challenge um, or Forgecast competition. We'll be checking both. Um, and we will be announcing the winners not until the end of September. So you've got plenty of time. Remember, the prizes, um, all of the entries have to work as both a pipe and as a tomahawk. You don't necessarily have to smoke some tobacco out of it to prove it. If you're not a smoker, just put some sawdust or something in the bowl and blow. Um, just to yep. show us that the airflow goes all the way through it. Simple as that. Um, but also we want to see it working as a functional tomahawk because making a hollow handle uh, and then having it still be functional is a challenge in itself. So Certainly show is. both of them. That's how you get your entry in and, and, and make it a legit entry. If you haven't already done it, make a second post. Show us, uh, <laughs> show us both. Um, but yeah, until the end of September and we are judging purely based on fanciness so go all out we don't we, 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 fancy they're all going to operate the same way they're all they all have to function so we we want to we want to see your best work put your best pipe forward take time take your time with it yeah you've got um, you've got another month and remember that alex and i both managed to make some fairly ornate daggers in under 48 hours yeah i think my total time was 36 hours of work yeah i think mine was like 32 34 yeah. somewhere around there uh and despite many failures i still managed to pull through if i can do it you can do it yeah so 48 hours is only six days worth of work yeah that's it and you've got Just you, you have that. two months for this competition so, so it really impresses guys and girls because uh, we we are really enjoying what we're seeing so far. Sure are. And if you have any questions, blacksmithing or bladesmithing questions for the show, hit us up on social media or email us at ask.forgecast at gmail.com and we may just answer them on the show. And if you are looking for Samwise the Fudgerigar, where can they find you? You can find me at Sam Towns Bladesmith on all platforms, 
including Patreon, Etsy, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, all of the places, including the kitchen sink. Where can they find you, Alex? I go by Valhalla Ironworks, and you can find me on Facebook and Instagram, YouTube, Patreon, Etsy, Redbubble, uh, Twitch, everywhere. Like bad smell. <laughs> anyway, guys, hope you are having fun. Hope you're keeping those fires lit, and we'll see you bright and early for another episode next week. See you guys. <laughs>